So, the passage today is from 2 Samuel 9. And while you're getting the passage up, a little bit of context about it is that in chapter 8, we heard all about how David defeated all the enemies that could have threatened the security of Israel. But now that there's peace in the land, David sets out about showing God's kindness to all those that he can. It says, David asked, Is there anyone still left of the house of Saul to whom I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now there was a servant of Saul's household named Ziba. They summoned him to appear before David, and the king said to him, Are you Ziba? At your service, he replied. The king asked, Is there no one still alive from the house of Saul to whom I can show God's kindness? Ziba answered the king, There is still a son of Jonathan. He is lame in both feet. Where is he? The king asked. Ziba answered, He is at the house of Machir, son of Amiel, in Lodabar. So King David had him brought from Lodabar, from the house of Machir, son of Amiel. When Mephibosheth, son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David, he bowed down to pay him honour. David said, Mephibosheth, at your service, he replied. Don't be afraid, David said to him, for I will surely, surely, surely show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan. I will restore to you all the land that belonged to your grandfather Saul, and you will always eat at my table. Mephibosheth bowed down and said, What is your servant that you should notice a dead dog like me? Then the king summoned Ziba, Saul's steward, and said to him, I have given your master's grandson everything that belonged to Saul and his family. You and your sons and your servants are to farm the land for him and bring in the crops, so that your master's grandson may be provided for. And Mephibosheth, grandson of your master, will always eat at my table. Now Ziba had fifteen sons and twenty servants. Then Ziba said to the king, Your servant will do whatever my lord the king commands his servants to do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. Mephibosheth had a young son named Micah, and all the members of Ziba's household were servants of Mephibosheth. And Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem because he always ate at the king's table. He was lame in both feet. Evening, everyone. Again, a couple of things before I start. Um, I, um, sometimes instead of water, I, I prefer to drink mild salsa, which is why this is here. Uh, I really don't have any idea why it's there. Uh, uh, second thing is, if you're new or visiting, I'm delighted that you've decided to join our fellowship uh, this evening. As I said before, my name's Ben. I'm uh, one of the pastors here at Night Church. Uh, feel free to come and say good day to me afterwards. Uh, finally, please do keep your Bibles open in uh, 2 Samuel 9. I'll lead us briefly in prayer. Let's pray. Thank and praise you, Heavenly Father, that you speak to us today by your Word and in the power of your Holy Spirit. Please, Father, as we consider your word tonight, give us uh, knowledge, depth of insight, make us uh, more like our Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ, and we ask this in his name. Amen. All right, brothers and sisters, if you had to put an adjective between the words gods and kindness, what might you choose? Now, before you think about it, if you're uh, of my generation where at school you didn't learn grammar because uh, some funny person on the Board of Studies had this idea that it will stifle their creativity, uh, an adjective is a describing word. Uh, my go-to is big fat because of my big fat Greek wedding. Uh, that's the way to think of an adjective. What would you put, uh, given what you know about God through his word or what you suspect of God, uh, between the words God's and now don't tell me, just think about it. Uh, tell me if I guess it within the next couple. One, I thought would be fairly obvious is to say God's loving 
kindness. That would be a pretty good adjective to stick between those words. You see, God demonstrates his love with the most extraordinary kindness, doesn't he? Why we're still sinners is when Christ died for us, Romans 5 8. Uh, this is how God showed his love amongst us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him, 1 John 4 9. Loving would be a pretty good choice of adjective. Another one you might have thought of is God's amazing kindness, given how immense and mind-blowing his grace is to those to whom he has granted the gift of salvation, undeserving as we are. The world's most well-known hymn, of course, Amazing Grace, gets this idea. And, of course, Amazing Grace could almost be synonymous with Amazing Kindness. But perhaps you've got a different one. If you're either pessimistic or experiencing some perhaps significant grief or hardship in the current stage of life you're in, you might have the rather saddening response of thinking that God's kindness is somehow temporarily or perhaps even permanently out of reach, not available. I want to say, if that's you currently, first of all, you're actually in good company with a number of God's people throughout the ages, including some of the writers of the Psalms of Lament, who often felt that God's kindness was out of reach for them. Uh, you hopefully will be pleased to know that even if things currently feel that way, that being in Christ means you are never in reality without the kindness of our loving Heavenly Father, though I get that can be cold comfort uh, depending on what you're kind of going through. But for me, given what I've gleaned from God's Word in 2 Samuel chapter 9, as I've looked at it this week, like so many things when it comes to the ultimate truth of God's revelation in Scripture, the word I'd choose is almost as offensive as it is wonderful. I'd call it God's scandalous kindness. A kindness so extreme as to be perceived as morally questionable. It's not, but it could be, understandably, perceived as morally questionable. Now, why have I landed there? Well, hopefully that's what you'll find out and you can agree or disagree with me as we go through what I consider a rather heartwarming chapter of 2 Samuel that God is speaking to us tonight. Uh, if you uh, remember, over the last couple of weeks, we've seen that King David has been established as king over God's chosen people, Israel, uh, in place of Saul, who is now dead and gone. David has received a palace. He's, as we saw last week, eliminated the, the threat of invasion from Israel's sort of surrounding enemies. And with all that in place, David now wants to show kindness to anyone who might still be left in the family of his dearly departed friend, Jonathan. And so our passage begins, verse 1, David asks, is there anyone still left in the house of Saul to whom I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake? And this isn't just one of those random act of kindness things that organisations or politicians do to kind of win favour for themselves and publicity, nor is it just some sentimental thing driven by David's very real grief at losing his good friend, Jonathan. It's more than that. Back in 1 Samuel, chapter 20, David had actually made a pact with Jonathan while Jonathan was still alive. It's what we call a covenant, an arrangement. Jonathan would give up his own claim 
to the throne. Remember, he was next in line after Saul, but he would give up his own claim to the throne in favour of David. And David, in return, would show kindness to Jonathan and to Jonathan's family. So, we'll dive into that a little bit. I'll put the words on the screen. In 1 Samuel, chapter 20, from verse 14, and this is as they're making that agreement, Jonathan said, but David, show me unfailing kindness like the Lord's kindness as long as I live so that I may not be killed and do not ever cut off your kindness from my family, not even when the Lord has cut off every one of David's enemies from the face of the earth. And if you remember the last week's sermon, last week's chapter, we kind of heard that that's pretty much what had happened, so this would have been fresh in, in David's thoughts. Verse 16, so Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, may the Lord call David's enemies to account, and Jonathan had David reaffirm his oath out of love for him, because he loved him as he loved himself. This is why David is keen to show kindness to Jonathan's now remaining family members, if there are any. He's actually keeping a covenant that he'd been very pleased to make. And we can't fail to notice that the kindness that David wants to show Jonathan is, as you can see there, like God's kindness, the Lord's kindness, just as much as it's a fulfilment of a promise that came about due to their friendship. In the interest of David fulfilling a promise and the interest of God showing his kindness, well, they're aligned. God, who is a couple of chapters ago uh, wanting to be identified as the father of the king and the king who's now called God's son, well, this father and the son are working to achieve the same thing. Eventually, there'll be a king in the light of David who will come along and say, the son does whatever he sees the father doing. So in verse 1 of our passage, whilst David wants to show kindness for Jonathan's sake, in the next couple of verses, we see that that's synonymous now. We're showing the kindness of God. And so verse 2, now there was a servant of Saul's household named Ziba, in Hebrew his name is Farkula, at Siva, which I, I really like, Siva. Anyone want to have a son? And that? Anyway, his name was Ziba. They summoned him to appear before David... And the king said to him, are you Ziba? At your service, he replied. The king asked, is there no one still alive from the house of Saul to whom I can show, notice, God's kindness? And just as David's desire comes as a result of the promise that he'd made to Jonathan, well, so God's desire to show kindness comes as a result of his promise to Abraham which we've sort of been seeing the trajectory of that promise through the life of David, haven't we? You see, if you remember the God's covenant with Abraham, which was to result in blessings to the whole world, well, once you've got God's people in God's place under God's rule, which is now enacted through God's king, you kind of expect God's blessing to start emanating from Jerusalem and out Judea, Samaria and the ends of the earth. Now, it turns out that there is someone alive in the household of Saul, to whom David can now bestow the blessings of God. And he's presented to us in the, uh, in the sort of lowliest of terms, like the super humble character, lame in both feet and referring to himself as a dead dog. Of course, he is Mephibosheth, but we don't hear his name just yet. 
Continuing from verse 3, Zebra answered the king, there is still a son of Jonathan, he's lame in both feet. Where is he? The king asked. Zebra answered, he's at the house of Machir, son of Amiel in Lodabar. We might wonder if Zeba doesn't trust that David really wants to show kindness. You see, instead of naming him straight away, he is Mephibosheth, Zeba's really quick to describe him as this guy who's lame in both feet. He's a cripple. In other words, David, he's no real threat to you. You know, you don't need to have him assassinated if that's actually what you're thinking. But on the other hand, we might also wonder if Zeba is actually that good of a character. And we find out later that he's a man of means. He's got lots of sons and even more servants. So if he's a servant of the house of Saul and he's even half loyal, well, why wasn't he looking after the needy Mephibosheth when he clearly had the means to do so? Spoiler alert, we find out much later and it'll be like next year, um, he turns out to be a bad guy, but, you know, we're just going to park that for the time being. And anyway, verse 5, David has this lame man brought from Lodabar to Jerusalem. Now, geographically, and this is extremely rough, I looked it up, but if Jerusalem was Canberra, Lodabar would sort of be the Sydney CBD, right? Get that idea? Yep. Now, for a crippled guy, that would have been considerable uh, to, to travel given that he's in the line of Saul and that it's David's men who are probably escorting him, and by escorting, I guess I mean carrying him, and that as a cripple, he doesn't really have much say in where he's going, he'd understandably be rather fearful about the fate that awaits him when he gets put in front of King David. And so verse 6, though I've got it on good authority from a great commentator, uh, it likely caused him considerable pain... When Mephibosheth, son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David, he literally fell on his face prostrate. And you know, it would be reasonable for Mephibosheth to wonder whether that's the last time he's ever going to do that, whether he's ever going to get up from this particular uh, prostrating, or would he be executed there and then? A direct descendant of the rival king, over whom David now had victory, the usual course of action was that he and any of his family members would be eliminated. The narrator hints that what happens next is an astounding and unexpected display of kindness. You see, up till now, David has been the king who speaks, the king, the king who said this and others, but now it's just David. And it's David who actually names him, just the word there, Mephibosheth. And I think we're supposed to see that this is spoken in a sort of endearing, warm-hearted kind of tone. Perhaps perplexed, but still certainly fearful, at your service, Mephibosheth replied. And then comes the astounding confirmation that instead of the expected curse, Mephibosheth would receive unexpected blessing. And so verse 7, don't be afraid, David said to him. Ever noticed how in the Bible when someone powerful says, don't be afraid, it's almost certainly some good thing's going to happen, right? The shepherds, don't be afraid, you know, you'll find the baby in the manger, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid, David said to him, for I will surely show you kindness 
for the sake of your father, Jonathan, I'll restore to you all the land that belonged to your grandfather, Saul, and you will always eat at my table. You've got to remember, friends, in this time and culture, table fellowship, that would have been considered a profound honour. And in this case, it would have been way above and beyond any convention and without much precedent, if any. But the kindness on view here is even more extreme than that, more extreme than what you or I might think on, on first reading. You see, when David originally had taken Jerusalem, you have to remember a few weeks back, he took it from this group of people called the Jebusites. And the Jebusites were so sure that no one was going to penetrate their, 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 their uh, city that they made this mocking saying, oh, the blind and the lame, David, they've got a better chance of getting in here than, than you and your men. And so, of course, inevitably, when David did capture Jerusalem, they did a, what was it, a uno-reverse on that saying, and they said, well, the blind and the lame will never enter the palace. Now, it was directed at Jebusites, and it's metaphoric, but even though it was, you know, metaphoric and, and meant for the enemies, there is absolutely no doubt that it would have been on people's minds the moment they heard that David had admitted a cripple into permanent table fellowship in his palace. The blind and the lame will never enter the palace, except this guy's going to enter and eat with me always. People would almost certainly have been shocked and possibly even questioning the soundness of David's actions here. Mephibosheth himself was clearly in disbelief. Let's have a look at verse 8. Mephibosheth bowed down, again, painful and for the second time, and said, what is your servant that you should notice a dead dog like me? And in many ways, it's a fair question. The house of Saul had once been very powerful and impressive. If you remember, Saul had been described by his head and shoulders. His head and shoulders were above everybody else's. Now, just two generations on, with his depleted family line, we're getting the feet of Mephibosheth described, and both of them are lame. Mephibosheth would be no threat to David, and David would lose nothing, and perhaps could even gain something, by either ignoring or assassinating him. But as we've already seen, David, like God, had once made a covenant to give blessing to the family of Jonathan. And like God, David delighted to keep his promise. More than that, David himself had actually once been in the position of coming before a powerful king in Israel. And at that time, David himself had spoken of himself as would you believe, a dead dog? Saul, why do you come chasing after me, a dead dog, a flea? You see, apart from the crippled feet thing, David actually knew what it was like to be in Mephibosheth's metaphoric shoes because he had been there himself. The king of God's choosing is a king who can empathise and sympathise with the people that come before him. Sounds kind of familiar, doesn't it? But even more than that, again, it was God himself who had determined to show this kindness to Mephibosheth. Well, why do I say that? I'll tell you. 
if you can remember, you're doing better than me, if you can remember all the way back to the beginning of 1 Samuel, the beginning of 1 Samuel, we did actually go through this, I don't know, it was like a year and a half ago or something, uh, there was this nobody family from Nowheresville and uh, one of the wives in the family was this, this, this woman named Hannah and Hannah was barren but she prayed earnestly to the Lord that he would open her womb and, and God answered her prayer and she bore a son and that son of course became the prophet Samuel and God not only answered her prayer but I think it would be fair to say he also gave to Hannah a prophetic insight into the kind of God he was and the kinds of things that he would do. In her prayer, all the way back, 1 Samuel chapter 2, Hannah said, and I quote, the Lord sends poverty and wealth, he humbles and exalts, he raises the poor from the dust and he lifts the needy from the ash heap, he seats them with princes and has them inherit a throne of honour. Uh, it might be striking that first verse, by the way, uh, two, uh, 1 Samuel 2, 7. Uh, there's a lot of uh, so-called Christian teaching around that seems to suggest that the Lord only ever brings wealth, but the Lord sends poverty if he chooses to do so, as well as wealth. And you can see how Mephibosheth kind of fits in this trajectory, can't you? He's the needy one who is lifted and he's seated with, in his case, literally, princes. He's eating at the king's table. You see, when God chooses to exalt the poor and the needy like Mephibosheth, he does it well, he does it properly, and he does it permanently. Read with me from verse 9. Then the king summoned Ziba, Saul's steward, and said to him, I have given your master's grandson everything that belonged to Saul and his family. You and your sons and your servants are to farm the land for him, and bring in the crops so that your master's grandson may be provided for. <clears throat> he lifts the needy from the ash heap. And Mephibosheth, grandson of your master, will always eat at my table. <clears throat> he seats them with princes and has them inherit a throne of honour. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants, so Mephibosheth inherited a lot of good stuff and he'd be served, he'd be set for life. Verse 11, then Ziba said to the king, your servant will do whatever my lord the king commands his servant to do. I'll pause at this point and say, to me, it's a little bit ambiguous as to whether Zebra is saying this with his heart in it, yes, I'll do whatever you say, or whether or not he's kind of got gritted teeth. And for those who know Harry Potter, I think of Creature, the house elf, who hates to um, serve the people that he has to serve, but he has to do their bidding. Uh, am I alone in this, or does anyone else know what I'm talking about? Uh, yeah, a third of you, okay. It could be, your servant will do whatever my Lord the King commands his servant to do. It could be that kind of attitude. Or it could be, your servant, we don't know, later on he found, we find out he's a bad guy. But in any event, continuing verse 11, Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. <clears throat> he seats them with princes. So Ziba, along with his sons and servants... He's back to doing what he possibly should have been doing all along. And Mephibosheth is literally seated with princes and figuratively has inherited a throne of honour. Ziba, along with his many sons and servants, is back doing what he possibly should have been doing all along. 
And Mephibosheth is literally seated with princes and figuratively has inherited a throne of honour. And all this is a permanent arrangement. The kindness of God, which is channeled now through his king, is greatly bestowed on the last person that you'd ever expect it to be given to. The king's kindness, which is really God's kindness, resulted in a permanent honouring of Mephibosheth, which in turn also probably ensured that the family line of Jonathan would continue. I think that's why we're told what we're told in the next verse. We're told that Mephibosheth had a young son named Micah and all the members of Ziba's household were servants of Mephibosheth. The blessing is to Jonathan's family in that it's presumably now able to continue and flourish. Now, that could be the end of the account. That would make for a nice little ending of this episode and we get on with the, the history of David and his people Israel. Except the narrator couldn't help but emphasise the notion that God's kindness both saw Mephibosheth set up for life and was also such a rare and exceptional nature that it could be called scandalous, really. Here's how he does it. Verse 13, and Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem because, just in case you forgot, he always ate at the king's table and in case you forgot, he was lame in both feet. There's the emphasis through repetition. The guy who now thrice we've been told he is lame in both feet, the guy who's referred to himself as a dead dog, a descendant of a failed dynasty, is now a permanent resident in the king's city, enjoying table fellowship like a prince, in the palace where the lame will not enter. The narrator wants us to see the almost, as I said, scandalous nature of the kindness of God channeled through his king. An obvious thing about Mephibosheth is that he was deeply humble, for his situation frankly allowed nothing else. Unable to defend himself and expecting to die, he could only fall prostrate before God's victorious king. And that's precisely the kind of person to whom God delights to show his amazing, ongoing and frankly scandalous kindness. To put it very simply, and hopefully somewhat memorably, God's scandalous kindness comes to those who humble themselves before His King. And, given that Mephibosheth now has a permanent place in the palace, and, spoiler alert, will later show tremendous loyalty to the Lord's anointed, just as David himself had once done, I'm going to add to that sentence that those who receive God's kindness become like him. They become like his king. Now, I hope it could go without saying that what David was to Mephibosheth, so, of course, Jesus is to us. Having been raised to the right hand of God, Jesus' kingdom is now established and he's in the process of making his enemies his footstool and showing kindness to those whom God has predestined to salvation. Now, I don't know everyone 
here listening tonight, it could be the case that for someone here, that you're, you're someone who's not yet, uh, someone who's experienced the kindness of God's King Jesus, that is, you're not yet a Christian. The kindness he gives is, well, for a start of having all your sins, past, present, future, no longer counted against you because Jesus suffered the curse of death so that you might enjoy the blessing of eternal life. But it saddens me to say this, a common reason people don't come to know Jesus as their King and Saviour is because, frankly, pride won't let us see the truth that our sinfulness is actually so real and so damning such that we really can't get to the point of humbling ourselves before him. You see, the advantage Mephibosheth had is that he knows he he should be dead. He's the lame dead dog. His feet are crippled. He knows that he, he can't have pride. But for some of us, we can't see it. And so it becomes very difficult We can't stomach the pain of falling prostrate before God's risen Messiah. Now, if that's you, the question I therefore want to ask you is, and frankly I need to ask you, is in terms of the undeservedness you have of God's kindness, are you a lame, dead dog? In other words, have you realised that there's basically no reason that Jesus should take notice of you because you've never taken proper notice of him. Will you recognise that one day every single knee will bow before him and the only difference between the people that do that would be whether it's done willingly or unwillingly. For those who bow unwillingly, it won't come to a good end. But to those who acknowledge Jesus' rule now well, you'll be seated at the king's table and you'll be there for all eternity. If you can't yet humble yourself, if you can't accept the idea that basically before God you're a lame, dead dog, if you find that too offensive to stomach, well, then you haven't realised just how much you need Jesus to be your Lord and Saviour. But secondly... For those of us uh, here who are in Christ, are you rejoicing in the King's kindness? That might seem a strange thing to ask. You'd think when Mephibosheth heard this stuff, he'd be leaping for joy. Well, not literally because he's lame in both feet, but, you know, he'd be really happy. But a common problem for Christians, and I'm certainly included in this, is that having been put at the King's table, we can easily keep doing Jesus the disservice of thinking that his ongoing kindness to us is something that he gives reluctantly. See, when it's the fourth year of every night, Mephibosheth going to that table, you know, you might ask yourself, is David like, oh, why did I invite this guy? Why is he still coming here, you know? Can that be the way that we think about Jesus when it comes to our need of his grace and kindness in an ongoing sense? I know I struggle with this. You know, a great remedy for this common and you know widespread problem for Christians you guessed it Dane Ortland's gentle and lowly I realized it had been more than five minutes since I'd said something about this book so here we are again as I've heard me say the vote for the best Christian book ever written apart from the Bible here's a favorite couple of paragraphs that deal perfectly with this issue and I'm going to read it and quote it 
back at this mic because the rain has stopped, thank you God. Here's what Mr Dane Ortland says and it's absolutely phenomenal. Here we go. It was the joyous anticipation of seeing his people made invincibly clean that sent Jesus through his arrest, death, burial and resurrection. When we today partake of that atoning work, coming to Christ for forgiveness, communing with him despite our sinfulness, we are laying hold of Christ's own deepest longing and joy. Our unbelieving hearts tread cautiously here. Is it not presumptuous audacity to draw on the mercy of Christ in an unfiltered way? Shouldn't we be measured and reasonable Careful not to pull too much on him? Would a father with a suffocating child want his child to draw on the oxygen tank in a measured, reasonable way? Our trouble is that we do not take the scripture seriously when it speaks of us as Christ's body. Christ is the head, we are his own body parts. How does a head feel about his own flesh? Well, the Apostle Paul tells us, quote, he nourishes and cherishes it, Ephesians 5.29. And then Paul makes the explicit connection to Christ, quote, just as Christ does the church because we are members of his body. How do we care for a wounded body part? We nurse it, bandage it, protect it, give it time to heal. For that body part isn't just a close friend, it is part of us. So with Christ and believers, we are part of him. That is why the risen Christ asks a persecutor of his people, why are you persecuting me? Jesus Christ is comforted when you draw from the riches of his atoning work because his own body is getting healed. Ah, Yeah, go buy the book and read it if you haven't already. Last but not least, having received the kindness of God's King, are you showing that kindness to others? Um, I'm really delighted to say that I know that there are so many small and big things that go on behind the scenes in the life of our church family, way too many to count and way too many, frankly, for me to know about. Most of the good service, most of the good deeds that demonstrate our faith that we do for one another will be noticed by very few people. God sees it all. On the last day, it'll be wonderful when he says, well done, good and faithful servant. We don't think, do things for one another to, to, to get thanks and accolade. But I'm delighted that I know that that's the case. And I only ever want it to be more the case. The one thing that I'm going to say that's a little bit sharp in this regard is the scriptures say we're to do good to all people, but especially the household of God. That is especially your church and your church family. It's for that reason that being physically gathered is of the utmost importance. It's why we bang on about things like growth group and deciding to go to church once. You heard that one before? You don't every Sunday think, will I go and join with my church community or not? No, no, no. You've already decided. If you're a Christian, you will be at church. It's that simple. Barring sickness, holidays or whatever, that, that, you've decided once. That's what you do. It's actually extremely hard, if not impossible, to be a mature Christian who takes fellowship very, very loosely. 
Where are you going to serve Christians, the most important people for you to serve, if you're never sort of regularly meeting with them? But it's not just us, it's also enemies. Jesus says, pray for those who persecute you. Now, Mephibosheth would hardly have been a persecutor of King David, but he showed him incredible kindness that you wouldn't have expected. You would have expected him to be an enemy. Also, it is with us and our enemies. I am delighted that we've had, uh, even just tonight, praying for brothers and sisters who are persecuted. And I don't know about your little groups, but we prayed for those who persecute them, that they'd either come to Christ or, of course, that we'd praise God for the fact that they will face his righteous judgment on the last day. Hopefully, they come to Christ before it's too late. With that in mind, I've spoken long enough, let me conclude in prayer and I think it's up to Ian if we want to have questions afterwards or not, but let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you for your Son, our Saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ, who shows scandalous kindness to the point where he would die on the cross to pay for all our sins, whereas the risen ruler, he'd be right to conquer all his enemies, but in his amazing love and grace, he calls and chooses some of us to join his kingdom. Heavenly Father, uh, Please prevent us from getting into that stupid rut of thinking we need to be measured when we draw upon the kindness and the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. May we gladly throw ourselves time and again on his mercy. May we rejoice in the fact that he prepares a table for us, both now and into eternity. Heavenly Father, I pray that for any amongst us who as yet do not know the immeasurable kindness of the Lord Jesus, by, by the power of your spirit at work in them, you convict them of their great need to fall on their face metaphorically before him and receive forgiveness of sins before it's too late. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.